Well, good morning, and welcome to Southwood. Uh, if this is your first time or your 100th time, we are so glad you are here, and you probably have no idea who I am. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I used to actually run the youth group here at Southwood a few years ago, uh, but for the, this past year, I'm actually over at our Anderson campus, and I am the college teaching director over at Anderson. So normally I spend my days uh, interacting with college students and teaching them on Sunday mornings, uh, but since it's summer... As you can tell by the empty roads and restaurants, uh, the students have abandoned us, and they've abandoned specifically me. And so I have no one, no one to meet with and talk to. And so out of their graciousness, our other pastors said, well, Jacob, you can talk to the older people sometimes. I said, okay, well, I'll take it. You probably wear pants instead of shorts, but that's still cool. Uh, I'm so excited to be here, so glad uh, to be with you here at Southwood. I'm so excited uh, to really just get into what we've been talking about all summer, uh, which is our Theophany series. I'm excited because we are basically tackling a topic, an issue uh, that is not often covered. This is not a very common sermon series, the Theophanies, the times when God has revealed himself to man. And one of the ways that kind of helps me understand kind of what we've been going through this summer actually is a story from when I was back in college not too long ago at Texas A&M, history department. (laughs) Thank God for you. The rest of you wouldn't know what happened in the past if it weren't for him, so you should be grateful. And in my time at Texas A&M in the history department, I uh, actually was dating my wife, my now wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, we dated all through college, a woman named Susan Smith, who's an incredible woman. And we did, yes, absolutely. And we dated all through college, uh, but about a year and a half into college, about our sophomore and junior year of college, uh, I was in a class uh, where I had a class friend. And you see, in all of my classes, I had a class friend. It was something that I knew to create for myself, a relationship that I started in every class that I took, because I er- learned early in college that I did not have the inner drive and fire to show up at every class when it actually occurred. So I knew I needed some accountability in my life. I needed someone to pull me there. And so I would always make a class friend. First day of class, I would walk in. I would see just someone sitting. I would sit next to them, introduce myself, and I would sit next to that person every week for the sole purpose of having this person that would be accountable with me about showing up to class. If one of us had to miss for sickness or something like that, we could exchange notes. We would help each other out. So every single class, I always had a class Friend, and about my sophomore year of college, I had a class friend who was a girl, and her name, was, we're going to call her Myrtle, okay? So Myrtle, <laughs> Myrtle was my class friend, and she was a great class friend. Girls were always great class friends because uh, they had much better handwriting, and that was, <laughs> that was about it. And I... I grew up with two sisters, and so I was used to being friends with girls, so it wasn't a big deal for me to meet Myrtle on the first day and be like, hey, let's be class friends, and let's, you know, make sure we show up to class, share notes, all that great stuff. And so over the course of that semester, as we were showing up to the psychology class, learning these things, uh, I found out that Myrtle was actually a pretty, she was a great person. Like, we really enjoyed uh, taking the class. It was a very interesting subject. We enjoyed uh, just witnessing the insanity that occurred around us and kind of making fun of it. She was a very funny person. Uh, And so over the course of that semester, I also, every time I would leave that class, I would go and meet Susan, who was uh, getting out of class at the same time. So our schedules linked up, and we were able to kind of walk on, went uh, somewhere else on campus after that class every single week. So I would leave my class, 
say bye to Myrtle, bye Myrtle, and then I would walk and meet Susan. And I found that over the course of the semester, about halfway through, Susan was slowly becoming more agitated. And our relationship seemed to be souring in that moment. And so in my mind, I thought, well, you know, maybe she's had a really rough class before this time, right? Like maybe she's just having a rough day. Maybe it's something at work or, or a friend thing. And so I tried to think, okay, how can I help her in this situation? And so sometimes I would share a delightful anecdote from earlier in my day. Sometimes I would try to tell her about the funny things that happened to Myrtle and myself in the class right before. <laughs> yes, some of you are much better at dating than I am because <laughs> you already know where this is headed. But eventually I decided to stop just trying to make stuff up and I just asked Susan point blank. I said, what is wrong? Like, I feel like you're just more upset in this time. I feel like there's something the matter uh, I feel like our, you know, it's just something's kind of, there's some bitterness or some sourness in our relationship. What's going on? And she told me point blank, she said, Jacob, every single time that I meet you after this class, I, I see you. She says, I see you walking with this beautiful woman, laughing and chatting and waving. <laughs> and then you come and meet with me and you tell me about the things that y'all did together. She says, you know, that just makes me a little uncomfortable. We've been dating for about a year and a half. She said, you know, that that makes me kind of jealous. I'm a little uncomfortable with this situation. And in that moment, I suddenly realized what a fool I had been. I realized in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, you're completely right. Like, I just wasn't even thinking along those lines. Here I was talking to this girl, you know, having a casual relationship, but it was probably getting a little too casual. And I had brought this Jezebel into our relationship. And it was completely my fault. And so I apologized. I said, oh my gosh, I'm so, you know, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. And it was because I was just completely oblivious. I wasn't doing it out of spite or out of anger. I was doing it entirely because I just wasn't even aware of Susan's feelings on that level. I was completely glancing over that entire aspect of our relationship. I got blindsided by an issue. My relationship went sour because I just was ignoring one whole area of it. And the reality is that many of us, all of us have had a moment where our relationship with God feels sour. Even if we're Christians, even if we are people who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe, we who are Christians will still at times feel as if our relationship with God, even though it's still there, it just doesn't feel quite right. feels broken or, or torn or, or marred or scratched up. There's something wrong with that relationship. How many times have you felt distant from God? How many times have you felt this, this, this sourness? How many times have you felt crippled in that relationship? Many of the times that we feel that way, it's because there's oftentimes a, a feeling of maybe guilt that's sitting on us. So there's a sin in our life that feels like we just, we can't go to God with that sin. It's just too much. And I'm here this morning, I'm talking to you right now because I want you to realize that so many times that guilt pops up. So many times that relationship feels sour. So many times we are falling because we don't know what we're facing. So many times we fall because we don't realize that there is a spiritual war occurring around us. 
we are completely ignoring the spiritual aspect of our relationship with God, of our relationship with this world. Many times we walk through life and we get caught up in work or school or whatever we're doing, and we forget that there is a spiritual realm. There are angels and demons. There's a battle, a war being raged for the souls of people around us. We forget this, and so we fall time and time again. This is why God steps in to Zechariah, chapter 3, and he shows him himself. This is why there's a theophany in Zechariah 3, because God goes to Zechariah, and he reveals not only himself, right? That's, that's the definition of a theophany, God revealing himself to humanity, whether that's uh, he appears as a person, sometimes he's just a voice, sometimes he, he's an image, But this time, he reveals himself to Zechariah, not only to reveal himself and something about his character, something about his own plan, but he reveals in this theophany, not only God himself, he also reveals our enemy. And this is incredibly significant. This is one of the first times, one of only two times in all of our Old Testament, where God reveals our spiritual enemy. And he's revealing this enemy not just so that we can be like, oh, okay. He's revealing this enemy because this revelation is crucial in equipping us to fight against the enemy. He's revealing the enemy, showing us the war, because we have to be aware of what we're facing in order to fight it. We have to know what I'm facing in order to fight so I don't fall every time. I can fight it because I know what's there. I know who my enemy is. I know what his plan is. God is saying, this is what you're facing right here. Zechariah, look. See, the entire book of Zechariah, uh, there's a lot of prophecies. Uh, we look throughout the book, uh, and we actually see eight. There's this first chunk of Zechariah, first uh, few chapters, there are eight different visions that God is leading Zechariah through. And God has a very specific purpose in the book of Zechariah. Ultimately, uh, it boils down to what Zechariah's name is. Many of our prophets in the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, their names are, enti- are hugely significant. And they really sum up basically what their book is all about. For Zechariah, his name means literally God remembers. And that was huge for Israel at the time because when Zechariah was ministering to the nation of Israel, everything in their lives looked like God had completely forgotten about them. Some of Israel was in the promised land uh, working to build their city, working to build Jerusalem, working to build their temple. But most of Israel was actually in a foreign land in captivity. If you asked any random Israelite, hey, does God remember you right now? They'd probably say, no, I don't think so. I think he's, he's busy with other stuff. So God goes to Zechariah specifically and starts to lay out these visions start to lay out this word, this message for his people. And this time is so crucial, right around 520 BC, this time is so crucial for the nation of Israel that God is not only speaking through Zechariah, he's also speaking through another minor prophet named Haggai, who has another book in our Old Testament. And through Haggai, God is telling the nation of Israel, you need to rebuild the temple. Okay, that's the whole point of Haggai. Rebuild, rebuild, rebuild. Rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. You've got to go make this house of worship so that you can be brought back to God so you can put him in his rightful place. And as Haggai is writing that and preaching that, we also see Zechariah at the exact same time telling the nation of Israel, while you're building, repent. Repent. God remembers you, but you have to remember God. 
You can build that temple and it can look really great, but you've got to pray that God would clean out the inside of your heart. You've got to make sure the inside of that temple is just as beautiful as the outside. And that can only happen if you repent before the Lord. In other words, to admit your faults and then run in the opposite direction. That's what repentance is. It says, nation of Israel, you've got to repent. And so he details these visions. God gives them, again, about eight visions in the beginning of the book, all about these topics of God's plan for Israel. Uh, there's a lot of our eschatology, the end times, our understanding of what's going to happen at the end of the world. That comes from the book of Zechariah. In fact, a lot of the Zechariah has a lot of our uh, prophecies and information about the promised Messiah. Many of our, what we now understand uh, to be prophecies about Jesus Christ, take place in the book of Zechariah. And as God is speaking to Zechariah in chapter 3, we open up about halfway through. This is the fourth vision out of the eighth. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, we kick off with three main characters. We see that the angel that's with Zechariah, he showed Zechariah Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. So right here we kick off, we see three main characters in this vision. We have Joshua, the high priest. He's the first one that kind of stands out to us. Joshua, the high priest. Now what we need to understand is that Joshua was not, uh, he's not just the symbolic, uh, metaphorical figure. Okay, he serves a dual role. Some of what is happening to him is symbolic of the whole nation. But Joshua the high priest, he's an, he's an actual person. He's like a dude that Zechariah knew. Like lived down the street from him. He's like, hey, Josh. Hey, Zech. Right? That, they knew each other. We see Joshua the high priest in Ezra and Haggai. We see him pop up in other books. He's an actual person. He was the high priest of Israel at that time. And so Zechariah is having this incredible vision Right, this dream of, of the throne room of God, and Joshua is there. How cool is that? Right, this is that, this is that one dream that you actually would want to hear from your friend, right? Because your friend comes to you and say, oh my gosh, you and you were my dream last night. We went and picked apples and built go-karts. And you're like, oh, okay. But this time, Zechariah could go to Joshua and say, hey, you were in the throne room of God. And Joshua would be like, all right, here we go. Then what? And then Zechariah takes a very sharp turn uh, into the negative, and Joshua would probably not appreciate hearing this story because what we discover is that Joshua is in a very sad state of being. We see that as he's standing there before the angel of the Lord in the throne room of God, he is clothed in filthy garments. Now we read this as an English-speaking population And we're like, filthy, yeah, that's kind of gross, right? You think of like the paper towel that's got lint on it and tomato juice, I don't know, something from a bounty ad, right? You think of, yeah, that's kind of filthy. My kid gets grass stains on his knees. That's that's filthy. If you're reading this in the Hebrew, though, there's an entirely different connotation. If you're reading this in the Hebrew, you see the word soim. And literally, what that means, I'm I'm quoting Bible, is excrement. Human excrement. 
is covering Joshua's clothes. Zechariah is purposefully using strong language to show us Joshua is disgusting. And this is God's chosen representative. This is the high priest. This is, should be the most holy, wonderful man of God in all of the nation of Israel. And he's standing before God and he's covered in filth. Which sounds terrible. But to make it even worse is that as he's standing there, there's someone else accusing him. So there's someone bringing attention to this fact. There's someone this entire time who keeps pointing out, oh, look, look at this gross stuff that's covering him. They can't just glance over it. They can't just ignore the filth on Joshua. Instead, there's this other character, this Satan, who's standing at the right hand and accusing Joshua. He's saying, look at this filth. Look at that stuff. And our problem is that a lot of us, we bring a lot of different ideas about who the Satan character is, right? The reality is that a lot of us have had different Sunday school teachers in the past. We've read different books. Uh, we've grown up in different uh, denominations or churches or what have you. And we have been bringing in a lot of different ideas and preconceptions about who Satan is, about what Satan does. And so just kind of clear the air, put us all on the same kind of level playing field. We're going to take a moment right here, just kind of a little diversion and talk about, man, who is this Satan? Who is he? What does he do? What do we know about him? Because the reality is that our culture at large thinks they know who Satan is. If you look out into our culture, you can look out even outside of Christian culture, and you see non-Christians, you see people of other religious faiths, who all probably could tell you, yeah, there's the Satan or the devil, where they can describe him for you. And what's sad is that our culture at large we generally take Satan and we put him on one of two sides of a spectrum. And many times what we do is, as a culture, we take Satan and we completely just kind of make a joke out of him, right? We completely underestimate him. If you look up Satan on Google, this is like the first image. You've got, there's always a goatee, right? Always a goatee because they're evil, apparently. And he's got the horns, right? The pitchfork, he's got a cape because... You can't be a bad guy without a cape. And there's fire, right? Indicating, okay, well, yeah, there's the Satan guy, and he lives in hell, and he rules hell, right? That's our general cultural consensus. Uh, yeah, there's Satan, and he's down in hell, and he's the ruler of hell, and so he's really mean, he's maniacal, he laughs a lot. Uh, he just, just does that kind of thing. And every once in a while, uh, maybe he comes up to earth, or his, his helpers come to earth, and they cause mischief, right? Like they hide your socks, and you're like, oh. Satan, right? Like there's something happens where he kind of messes with your life, right? The devil will make you do things. Sometimes he shows up in Georgia for fiddle battles. Like he does <laughs> stuff. It's strange, right? Like, we don't really know what's going on. And we've taken this idea of Satan and we've made a complete joke out of him. Not only because of pictures like this, but I know for a fact we don't take Satan seriously because we have turned him into a dog costume, this is the high point of we don't care, okay? Dog costume. And we've decided that it is appropriate for, you know, Halloween, or maybe this is just everyday wear, to have little Mr. Snuggles dress up like the devil. So when people come, they say, why did you dress up your dog as the Lord of darkness and the father of lies? And we say, because he's such a little devil, right? 
And we do this to our dogs, which is so sad because I think even some of the dogs begin to realize. I love this picture because this dog's kind of, he kind of knows there's some heresy going on, right? He looks sort of like, I don't know, you guys. I don't know if we're taking this very seriously. But we've done this. We've taken the idea of Satan and we've made him into a joke. That's what we've done as a culture. Many of us, we just think of Satan as, oh yeah, he's that boogeyman, right? He's that kind of myth, that fable that we tell our kids to scare and make them behave. But then on the opposite end of the spectrum, many times, sadly, Christians, the Christian culture, we take Satan to the other extreme and we entirely overestimate him. We give him powers and abilities beyond anything that we see in Scripture, what we'll see in a minute. We decide that he's actually this all-powerful being who can do anything he wants. He's unstoppable. And he's this force that we should just be terrified of because there's nothing we can do to stop him. One of my favorite instances of Christians just getting freaked out by Satan is mid-80s. There was a national crisis with the Christian radio DJs who decided that Satan was on the move through a few different American rock bands, that he was, that there were these different bands, uh, ACDC, Pink Floyd, Jefferson Starship, which is the spinoff of Jefferson Airplane from the 60s. They look like this. And they had decided, these DJs decided that these bands were in fact worshiping Satan, and they wanted to get their, the youth listening to their music to worship Satan. And so when they put out their albums, their records, case of the giant CDs that were not made of metal, they would put them out, and when you played them backwards, somehow, you would hear a satanic message, and you would hear, like, go worship Satan or whatever. And so they decided, you know, no one should listen to these albums. Everyone should b- break them or burn them or whatever. Uh, we've got to get rid of these bands because they are worshiping Satan, and they're going to corrupt all of our youth. The future of our world is about to collapse because Jefferson Starship, which... To be fair, they could have been worshiping Satan. I don't know. They definitely worshiped blow dryers and perms, but <laughs> maybe Satan was thrown in the mix as well. I don't know that for sure, but the reality is I don't think those DJs really knew for sure if that was happening. I don't know if they really were p- correctly assigning these powers to Satan. I don't know if they were really taking a, a biblical view of who Satan is and what Satan does. They were painting him as this unstoppable force when in fact he's stoppable. The reality is that Satan, he's not a joke. He's nothing to be laughed at. Nothing to be scoffed at or dismissed. But at the same time, he's nothing that should terrify us beyond any, just anything we could imagine. When we look at Scripture, what the Bible reveals to us about Satan is that he is a threat. He's a real threat, but he's not an insurmountable threat. But he is a real threat. In fact, that's why when we look at Zechariah 3, the second time he pops up, first time he pops up in our scripture, uh, it's in the book of Job. And Satan is before the throne of God, and he's accusing this guy named Job before God. says, Job wouldn't really follow you if his life wasn't as perfect as it is. The second time we see Satan, the only other time we see Satan in our Old Testament, Zechariah 3, he's in the throne room of God. Notice, he's, never, he's not in hell. He's in the throne room of God, talking to God in both instances. And he's telling God, look at Joshua the high priest. He's disgusting. 
both instances, we see Satan accusing. We see Satan described as literally Satan, Hasatan. This is very significant. We use that. We think that's his name. The reality is that Satan in Hebrew is just the term for enemy. There were lots of Satans. You look at ancient, ancient Hebrew literature, you look in, even in our Bible, and you see other Satans. A person can have, that's my Satan. Ooh, Becky from HR, right? Like she would be my Satan, right? Or you could have, this king has a Satan, or this nation has a, a Satan, that Satan. But Satan is significant because he's Has Satan, literally the enemy, the enemy. So when we look in Scripture, we immediately see there's something significant about this guy. There's something big, not to be dismissed. And the next thing we notice is that he's oftentimes accusing us. We'll get to that in a moment. In a moment. But when we look in our New Testament, we actually see a lot more about Satan. The Old Testament, just a couple of references. New Testament, tons of information about Satan. A lot of it from Jesus himself. He told his disciples in John 8 that the devil, literally meaning the accuser, that's the word that he's using, the accuser, that's what devil is, was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He says the thief, this devil, he comes only to steal, to kill, to destroy. That's his battle plan. When we look at the epistles, we see Paul telling the Corinthians, in some people's case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is telling us that Satan is not only a murderer and a liar and a destroyer and a thief, he's a blinder. And this is the most tragic. We know from Scripture that Satan is seeking to blind the eyes of the unbelievers, to hide from them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to conceal from them the reality that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again for their sin. Satan doesn't want anyone to hear that. So he does everything in his power to stop them. But what we realize, if we kept going in the New Testament, we would see that any power that he has any authority he exerts in doing these things is only given to him by the grace of God. Anything he can do is only because God allows it to happen. Any power he has was given to him by God. And what we discover, if we kept going, going to Revelation, we see that this time where he has power is very short. That this time where he can do anything this time where he could blind and kill and destroy, this time is coming to an end. That one day Jesus Christ will return. That he will destroy all enemies, and that includes Satan, the enemy. That he will destroy death. That there will be a time that he brings in a kingdom and in a presence where there is no more theft, there is no more death, there is no more destruction, there's no more lying, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow. So we realize, if we keep reading, that Satan is a real threat, but he's not unstoppable. In fact, he is going to be stopped. And he knows it. He knows he's fighting a losing battle. But yet he's still fighting. And many of us aren't. Many of us, like we said at the very beginning, are oblivious to this battle. 
many of us have been blinded in one way or another towards the spiritual war. Many of us, we feel the effects of the battle, but yet we're not fighting in it. Many of us, we feel those accusations, right? Jesus calls the devil the devil because that means the accuser. We see him in the Old Testament, both instances, accusing people before God. Satan is constantly accusing. And who can blame him? Satan looks out at our world, he looks out at the Christian culture, and he sees disobedience, he sees sin, he sees fault. And so he goes before the Lord, he has helpers, as we see in Revelation, he has helpers, demons, that go out into the world to perform his tasks, because he isn't everywhere, he can't do everything, everywhere he wants. So he sends helpers, and they are accusing us. Accusing us of, man, can you believe what you said? To your spouse? I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you thought those things at work yesterday. I can't believe how vicious your words were as soon as that person left the room. I can't believe you had those feelings of doubt or anger or pride or selfishness. How could you possibly do that? How dare you? Look at this filth all over your life. And we hear those accusations and they pile up, they pile up, they pile up, and they crush us. And I don't care if you think that you're pretty good or if you're covered. The reality is we're all covered, but no matter what you think, it's there. No one could stand in front of me and tell me that they're perfect. There is filth in your life. Satan draws attention to it. He points a big old flashing arrow every single time. And we allow that to push us down. We fall over and over and over again because we don't know what we're facing. But thankfully in this passage, there's one more character. We see Joshua. We see this enemy but we also see the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord, who the first words out of his mouth in this passage is to rebuke that enemy. Now this angel of the Lord is a, can be a confusing term. It pops up in our scripture. Uh, it means multiple things. Uh, sometimes it's talking about literally just an angel, a messenger of God. Sometimes it's talking about God himself made in the image of a person. He is now made himself an angel. Sometimes it's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. Sometimes it's Jesus Christ before he took his humanly form. He, this is him appearing before people. I think in this instance, you make a strong case for being the pre-incarnate Christ because of the context of chapter 1, there seem to be some distinctions between this angel and God the Father. Even right here, we see that the Lord said to Satan, right, so the angel of the Lord is called the Lord, and he says to him, the Lord rebuke you. Seems to be making a distinction that I am God, but also I'm going to tell you about what God is going to do. I am Jesus Christ, God. But I'm going to tell you what God the Father is going to do. He's going to rebuke you. Not only am I going to rebuke you, Satan, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to declare to everyone before me. We find out that there's actually some other priests, some of Joshua's peers are in the audience at the same time. God says, the angel says to all of them, he says, remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And to Joshua, 
the angel says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. He hears those accusations. He hears He sees the big arrow pointing at the filth. He sees the filth. It's not like he's just glancing over like, what filth? I don't know what you're talking. He sees it. And yet he says, you know what? I'm going to give you new clothes. Behold, I'm going to take away this iniquity. How can he do this? We keep reading further into the passage. We see that he says, he says, look, how can I do this? How can I take away this filth? It's because one day I'm going to bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I'm going to have this branch. I'm going to have this stone that has seven eyes that indicates that it sees all things. It's omniscient. So it's aware of all the filth. It's aware of all the transgression. It's aware of all the iniquity. It's aware of every single sin in your life. It knows about more sin in your life than you do. And yet, I'm going to engrave upon that stone an inscription. We don't know exactly what it says. But what it does is it removes the iniquity of this land in a single day. So there's this branch. There's this stone. Strange terminology. Strange words. But yet we see them show up in our other prophets. And slowly we begin to understand who this branch, who this stone was. We see in Jeremiah that the Lord promises that a new time will certainly come when I will raise up for them a righteous branch. Descendant of David, he will rule over them with wisdom and understanding, do what is just and right in the land. I'm going to have this branch and he's going to be righteous. I mean, he's going to be perfect. He's going to do everything right that you can't do. This branch is perfect. This stone, Peter tells us, that there are going to be some of us, you, many of us who are here right now, we believe, we see the value, his value. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling stone and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter looks back and says, you know that stone? That's Jesus. That's Jesus Christ. What we sang a few minutes ago with Zach. Christ is our stone. He's our cornerstone. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you see the sin in your life, realize that there's nothing you can do to remove it yourself. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, if you accept that forgiveness, if you want that relationship with God, then he becomes your cornerstone, becomes this foundation for you. Everything that you do and say should be built upon that rock, which is Jesus Christ. But Peter says there's other people out there. They don't see the value of Christ. Some of them blinded because of the work of Satan. And they trip over him. The reality is that we have friends, we have family members, we have co-workers who are tripping over Christ right now. And that should pain us so deeply to know that there are people in this world who are tripping over Christ. That God wants to use us to go into their lives, to explain the truth, to show them the reality of what Christ has done. But many of us, we we stop and we can't go out there. We don't want to minister. We don't want to try to share that gospel with the people around us because we're still hung up on that relationship that feels broken. 
because many of us are still hung up on that feeling of guilt, because many of us are hung up on that sin that we just feel like is, is insurmountable, is unforgivable. Many of us right here, right now, hear those accusations, and we let them just push us down, and we fall. But is that what we're called to do? Is that how Christians are called to live? Should we be crippled by the sin in our life? The beginning of the summer, uh, I was out of town a lot. I was going up to Dallas for seminary classes. Um, I have, I'm still taking classes, uh, still getting a degree from DTS up in Dallas. And so I, I would be gone for a week at a time. I go up there living on an air mattress uh, in an apartment full of boys. Which is, but we, I make it work. And I'm there for about a whole week, and then I come back. And so I would be gone for a week. I'd be back uh, for maybe a week or two at a time before I'd have to go back up to Dallas. But the reality is that even when I was back, my mind was still kind of in Dallas. My mind was still having to work on a lot of uh, reading, a lot of essays and papers uh, to get those class credits uh, for the time that I was up there. And so this whole basically first half of the summer was very, very difficult uh, for myself and my wife. Because every time I go up to Dallas, I'm leaving her behind. And so she has work and she has plans and she had travel and stuff too. So even when we were in the same place, which was rare, uh, we weren't quite in the same place, right? We weren't quite connecting on the same level that we used to. And so over the span of that time, the beginning of the summer, I gradually just got more frustrated. I began to realize, man, I, I just, I don't feel like we're connecting. I don't feel like we're having fun together. And I began to grow bitter. And I began to grow really kind of frustrated at not only the situation, but at Susan. And I began to think, you know, like, I just, it seems like she's different, right? Like, there's, there's this stuff going on, and, and it's, it's like, she's not making an effort in this and that, and I'm not happy with this. And this bitterness and this resentment started to grow in my heart, and I started to walk down that dark path where it was just growing and growing until there was a moment earlier this summer By the grace of God, the Holy Spirit reached into my heart and convicted me. And he said, look at this sin. Look at this selfish, twisted attitude that you're entertaining. And as soon as he shone that light on my sin, I grabbed hold of that conviction. I said, God, take me out of this. So that evening, I went on a walk with my wife. We went on a walk around our neighborhood. And I just confessed to her what she had already noticed, that I was having a bad attitude. I apologized. I asked for her forgiveness. And because she's amazing, she forgave me. And now we're stronger. Our relationship is better. We're continuing to fight. We put systems in place. We're trying to do better. Because there was a moment where I was willing to just confess the filth, to accept her forgiveness, and then fight for that relationship. Let me tell you, one of the mysteries of marriage that Paul tells us in Ephesians is that the marriage between a man and a woman, that that beautiful union, is in itself a picture of God's relationship to his church. That's what's so incredible about marriage. That's why we get married, not just so that we can have a partner and someone to high-five with on 4th of July. I don't know. That's weird. But <laughs> we get married because we want to display to the world an image of what Christ does with his church. And the reality is that in that moment, I was unwittingly 
playing out exactly what God calls us to as Christians every single day. The reality that God calls us as Christians to realize that we have filth in our lives. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Conviction is good. Guilt, that just overriding sense of I'm terrible and you don't know what to do with it and you just, it sits on you forever, that's bad. Guilt in that sense is from the devil, the accuser. That is that's something you should pray against. But conviction is good. Conviction is from the Lord. He grabs a hold of your heart. He shines a light on something in the darkness. And he says, get it out. And so we confess that before the Lord. We say, God, I recognize this filth in my life. And then when we do that, we know that God is faithful and just to forgive. Our prayers are powerful. Our confessions are meaningful because we know that God answers those prayers, that he forgives us every single time, that God says, I already died for that. It's done. You've placed that upon Jesus Christ. It's okay. I see it. I don't just ignore it, but I see it and I give you something new in return. I give you that righteousness that is only possible through Jesus Christ. So I confess the sin. I accept that forgiveness. And then I continue to fight. I keep fighting. I keep looking. I keep trying to confess. I keep trying to to accept that forgiveness. I continue to fight against this enemy. I'm aware of what I'm facing in this spiritual battle. Because if I'm ignoring it, if I'm unaware of what I'm facing, I'm going to fall over and over and over and over and over again. God wants us to be aware of this war. But he also wants us to be aware of the fact that he's heard the accusations. He's seen our filth. But he's forgiven it. So for you, this week, my charge is simple. Go before the Lord. When you're driving to work, when you have a quiet time in the the morning, or whenever you have just a moment alone, Spend some time being honest with the Lord. Ask Him to convict you. If you don't feel it already, ask the Lord to convict you, to show you that filth in your life. Confess it to Him. Acknowledge that there is fault, that there is sin in your life, but then accept the forgiveness that God freely offers through Jesus Christ. And then fight. You've seen the war. You've seen the enemy. Fight. Things in place. Have a date night with your spouse so you don't get frustrated, so you don't miss each other. Have accountability so you don't continue to fall into lust or pride or whatever it is that is your main thing. Have a structure in your life. Fight against this enemy. Fight in this battle or else you're going to fall over and over and over again. We see our enemy, but God has beaten him. So let's rest in that knowledge. Let's go before the Lord in prayer right now. God, we thank you that you have defeated the enemy that we cannot defeat on our own. God, we thank you that there are these terrifying things in the world, but that Jesus Christ himself tells us that he has overcome the world. God, we thank you that there is forgiveness and freedom found through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you would take a moment right now, ask the Lord to maybe just convict your heart. Ask the Lord to shine a light on an area where maybe you 
are not forgiving, accepting forgiveness for yourself, maybe shine a light on an area where you're not accepting the fact that God has forgiven someone else who's wronged you. Ask the Lord to convict you right now. If you would, take a moment. Ask the Lord to not only help you accept the forgiveness that he offers, but ask the Lord to show you maybe a a plan for fighting against that spiritual enemy, for fighting against that war, for fighting against that guilt or shame that you're wrongfully feeling. Ask God to show, give you a plan, maybe a conversation that needs to happen with another person, uh, maybe just a time where you need to pull away and map something out. Ask God to give you a direction to head this week so that you can fight this war.